Section 5, comprising chapters 13, 14, and 15 of Life and Adventures of Frank and Jesse James by J.A. Dacus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by P.J. Landau. Chapter 13, On the Pacific Slope. Jesse James sails for California. At Paso Roble. Frank goes west on the Lapansu Ranch. Adventures in Nevada. A dark seance. The boys return to the east. Immediately after the Russellville robbery, Jesse James appeared once more in his old haunts in Missouri. But his physical system had been greatly taxed by the tremendous strain to which it had been subjected. Twice already he had received bullet wounds through the lungs, which would have killed any man less extraordinarily endowed with vitality. Scars of twenty wounds were on his person, and yet the man who had gone out from home as a boy entered into close affiliation with a band of the most daring and desperate men ever organized in America, sustained his part with them, and even surpassed them in all the daring feats they accomplished, ere yet the manly beard had shaded his face. After having passed through more exciting scenes than any living man, and participated in more terrible encounters than most men, yet survived, and though his terrible wounds had weakened his frame, yet his wonderful courage and tremendous reserve of vital forces were such as to ensure his final restoration to complete health. He had traveled on horseback from the little town of Chaplin, on the eastern verge of Nelson County in central Kentucky, to the western border of Missouri in the space of a few days subsequent to the 20th of March, 1869. Jesse James was seen in Clay County, Missouri, in the first days of April of that year, and was seen at Chaplin on the 18th of March. That he was at Russellville, the evidence seems to be clear, and that he led a most exciting retreat from that place through the hill country of Kentucky until he reached the banks of the Mississippi is one of the facts of his history. It was his genius which enabled his confederates to escape from a determined pursuit of resolute men. Once on the west bank of the Mississippi, to use a westernism, he was on his own stamping ground. He knew every trail across the swamps of southeastern Missouri, and every pathway in the tangled breaks over the rugged hills of the southern counties of that state were as familiar to him as the woodlands about the old farm in Clay County. He knew more, that there were scattered throughout the country from Chaplin to Kearney, a route of more than 500 miles in length, men with the reputation of respectable members of society, who always had a warm welcome for him and his daring men. Who, then, could pursue and capture him? There was no room for wonder that Jesse James escaped the irate Kentuckians, who followed his trail from Russellville to the banks of the Mississippi, and finally lost it among the rugged hills and vast forests west of the river. Jesse's extraordinary journeys under such circumstances did not tend to the restoration of his physical system, which had been greatly shattered by the terrible wounds which he had received at the close of the war in an encounter with a company of federal soldiers in Lafayette County. In those days, the friends of the Jameses were numerous in the state of Missouri, for at that time scarcely anyone believed that they had developed into brigands. Among those who advised with Jesse James at that time was his physician and friend, Dr. Joseph Wood of Kansas City. 
It was the opinion of this physician that the condition of his patient imperatively demanded a change of scene and a more genial climate to ensure his restoration. In accordance with this advice, the patient set about his preparations for a voyage by sea and a sojourn on the Pacific Slope. Toward the close of May, 1869, Jesse James left the home of his mother near Kearney, Missouri, for New York. Here he spent only a few days. On the 8th of June, he embarked on the steamship Santiago de Cuba, bound for Aspinwall, crossed the isthmus to Panama, and there again took a steamer for San Francisco. The spoils of Russellville allowed him means to gratify every desire in the city of the Golden Gate, and he remained there for some time. Meanwhile, Frank James, who was not deemed able to make the long ride in the flight before the officers at Russellville, was secluded for a time in the house of a respectable citizen of Nelson County, Kentucky. But it was not deemed best that Frank should linger long in that part of the country. A friend provided a close carriage, and a few weeks after the Russellville robbery, Frank James was very quietly driven northward one evening, passing by Bloomfield, through Fairfield, by Smithville, and on through Mount Washington to Louisville. Here he remained a few days, and then took the cars for St. Louis. Arriving in that city, Frank put up at the Southern Hotel, registering as F.C. Markland, Kentucky. The name was one he had used before, when he did not desire that his real name and character should be known. Here he met two or three of his old comrades, and he spent several days very pleasantly with them. Meanwhile, he communicated with his mother and apprised her of his intention to go west across the Rocky Mountains. Mrs. Samuels met her son at the house of a relative in Kansas City, where he remained for two days, and then bidding farewell to those who had always been true to him, he took passage for California, where he arrived some weeks before the arrival of Jesse. Frank did not remain long in San Francisco, but proceeded very soon to San Luis Obispo County and paid a visit to his uncle, Mr. D. W. James, who was at that time proprietor of the Paso Roble Hot Sulphur Springs, a much-frequented resort of invalids in that county. The friends of the boys and Jesse James himself, in a published letter, claimed that Frank went by sea to California, and that he sailed from New York on one of the vessels belonging to the Pacific Mail Steamship Line. But this story was doubtless set afloat to mislead the public concerning the movements of the boys. The above account we have from a gentleman who was at that time a friend of the Jameses, and who traveled with Frank from Kansas City to San Francisco. He knew the desperado well, and had daily conversations with him on the journey. After spending some time at the Springs, Frank James proceeded to the ranch of Mr. J.D. Thompson, with whom he had a previous acquaintance, gained while that gentleman was visiting in the States. The noted ex-guerrilla remained at the La Ponce Ranch for many months and until after the arrival of Jesse. The two brothers met at Paso Roble. Here they remained for several months. In the autumn, they went out to the mining districts of Nevada. It appears from information in the possession of the writer that the boys behaved themselves with much circumspection while they were the guests of their uncle. Their evil propensities were suppressed, and no one who came in contact with the quiet, sedate Frank and the genial, companionable Jesse 
during those days would have suspected that these brothers were the most daring and dangerous men who had ever yet defied the powers of the state and disregarded the demands of society. Some quiet weeks had been passed, the weak lungs of Jesse had healed, and the lame hip of Frank was well again. The climate had wrought a wonderful change in their physical systems. Jesse had grown robust and possessed of all the powers of physical endurance, which have been since tested and proved incomparable. The quiet life at Paso Roble began to be irksome to the men whose lives had been passed amid the rudest shocks and the wildest storms of excitement and passion. They would go out among the miners and have a little fun while prospecting there. In Nevada, society was in its rudest stages of development. The country was filled with adventurers from every country under the sun. In the camps of the miners and prospectors were desperados from all regions, and a visitor to those places who wanted to fight only had to say so, and there was no delay in getting accommodated. It was then flush times in the Bonanza State. Frank and Jesse went up to the mountains to take a look at the country. They formed some acquaintances among the adventurers, and they found several old acquaintances from Missouri and Kentucky. The rude life of the mining camps was more congenial to the disposition of the men who had rode with Quantrell than the refined society found about a fashionable resort for invalids, and the restless raiders liked well to linger in the tents of the miners among the lofty summits of the Sierras. For a while they passed their time very pleasantly in such associations. They prospected some and played sportsmen in the intervals of time so spent. But their pleasant days in the Sierras were doomed to draw to an abrupt close. There was a new camp formed at a place called Battle Mountain. It will be remembered that we are writing of a period when the rich mineral discoveries of Nevada had drawn a miscellaneous population from the four quarters of the globe. Camps and towns sprang up like Jonah's gourd in a night and disappeared with the noonday sun of the morrow. Battle Mountain was a rattling place. The people who had pitched their tents there had come in search of gold. Many of them were old pioneers, accustomed to hard knocks and sudden surprises. Others were hard-visaged men who knew how to flee before the avengers of blood, a knowledge gained during years of practical experience. They were quick with the knife and lightning shots. They were inured to scenes of danger and were not liable to suffer from sudden surprises. Frank and Jesse James, accompanied by two old Missouri acquaintances, concluded to pay a visit to Battle Mountain to shake up the encampment, as they said. They found spirits there who were congenial and some who were uncongenial. At last, they brought up at a shanty where women, whiskey, and cards united their attractions to allure the old pioneers and chance visitors. The Jameses do not drink but they claimed to be handy with the pasteboard. Here they engaged in a game of cards with two notorious roughs and blacklegs, and their companions also found a pair of gamesters ready and anxious to join them in a bout of poker. For a time, the game proceeded without anything occurring to disturb the amicable relations of the players. At last, one of the old Missouri friends of the Jameses detected his opponent cheating in the game. He charged him with it, and the other denied the charge and demanded a retraction. Of course, nothing of that sort could happen. The gambler retorted by drawing a knife 
and the other snatched a pistol from his belt. Jesse James, who was sitting at a table a little distance away, saw the danger of his friend, and in an instant, just as the gambler was in the act of striking the Missourian, he threw his pistol out and shot the blackleg through the heart. As he turned, the man who had been sitting opposite to him, engaged in play, had a pistol leveled at his breast. Jesse brought his pistol around with a swing, and another gambler fell without a groan to the earth, dead, shot through the brain. But this time, the utmost confusion prevailed. Lights were overturned, and the place was shrouded in utter darkness for an instant of time. There was a crowd of twenty or thirty men in the shanty when the firing commenced. Every man was armed, and all had their weapons in hand. Jesse cried out, Stand aside! Be ready! The other three men of the party understood what he meant. It was for them to get out, and they rushed for the door. A pistol would flash, and a heavy body would fall with a thud to the ground. When the door had been gained by his companions, Jesse, who had covered their exit, sprang forward to escape from that pandemonium of darkness, suffering, and death. Pistols were popping, and knives were clashing in a horrid din. The maimed, writhing in agony, mingled their groans and curses in the awful uproar. By the flashing of pistols, Jesse saw that Frank and his two friends had made their exit, and were firing into the crowd as opportunity offered, taking care to not shoot toward him. He determined to leave the shanty, but two burly roughs with huge knives stood in the way. A pistol ball quieted one of them, and almost before the flash of his pistol had faded away, and before the other could think of using his knife, Jesse sprang upon him and dealt him a fearful blow on the head with the butt of his pistol. The gambler sank with a groan to the earth, and with a spring Jesse joined his friends on the outside. By this time, a light had been placed on a barrel behind the slab which served for a counter. Three men were seen weltering in their own blood, dead. Four others were lying writhing in pain, and all were gory from the blood which flowed from ghastly wounds. The crowd saw all this at a glance. The dead and the wounded in the shanty did not include any of the strangers. The crowd yelled for vengeance on the authors of the bloody tragedy, there was a shout that awakened the mountain echoes for miles around as the infuriated pioneers and gamblers surged out of the shanty. Meanwhile, the Jameses and their friends had retired a short distance from the place to ascertain the extent of the injuries they had received in the melee. It was a cloudless night, and the stars shone brightly. The leaders of the mob soon discovered the four Missourians and ran yelling toward them. "'Back, you damned miscreants! Stand back, I say!' cried Jesse James. But they rushed forward at the top of their speed. "'Boys, we're in for it,' said Jesse, quietly. "'All right, be ready.' Then he shouted, "'Come on, damn you! Just come ahead and be killed!' He had no more than ceased speaking when they had approached near enough to open fire. "'Wait, boys, steady! Every shot must tell, now!' And as the sound of the last word died away, there was the report of four pistols, almost simultaneously discharged, and four men fell badly wounded. Once more the four deadly pistols were discharged, and two more of the howling mobs sank down in their tracks. The others paused, but they gave the Missourians a parting salute as the latter moved rapidly away. That salute seriously wounded one of the friends of the Jameses, and carried away a portion of Jesse's hat brim, 
but they escaped, aided by the night, and hastily returned to Winnemucca. Here they learned that intelligence of the terrible dark seance at Battle Mountain had preceded them, and that it was not a safe place. Aided by friends, they remained in seclusion a few days, waiting an opportunity to get away. During these days of retirement, they made up their minds to return to the states east of the mountains, and when they met a favorable opportunity, they embraced it. And in another week after their departure, they were secure among friends near their old haunts in Missouri, ready to plan still more startling campaigns than any which they had yet undertaken. Chapter 14. Were they driven to outlawry? The peculiar circumstances surrounding the Jameses, social and political ostracism, the vigilance committees, not allowed to remain at peace in their own home, they go forth as enemies of society. Quote, Those misnamed men whom damned custom had brazed so, that they were proof and bulwark against sense. Unquote. Were the James boys driven to outlawry? A strange question, no doubt, many readers will think, in light of the history of their lives. And yet it is a pertinent question when we consider the tendency of the human mind and conscience to deteriorate under the pressure of circumstances. Environments have much to do in molding character. Perhaps there is not as wide a space between the natural characteristics of mind and heart in boys of eight as is generally supposed. But philosophizing aside, are there not mitigating circumstances in the case of the James boys? We do not undertake to defend them. Their course is indefensible. We cannot apologize for them, for outlawry cannot be palliated. But let justice be done even to these renowned outlaws. Those sinners, have they not been sinned against? Those slayers of men, have they had no provocation? Let facts speak. When the banner beloved by the southern people, whether wisely or unwisely, it matters not, was folded away forever at Appomattox, that event brought peace and repose to hundreds, nay, thousands of grim, worn soldiers who had bravely striven to uphold the ensign they loved so well. The war ended for them, never to be commenced again. But all along the bloody borderland, there existed a distinctly different condition of affairs. The warfare was that of community against community, of neighbor against neighbor, and of relative against relative. Cole Younger, the guerrilla, engaged in mortal combat with Charles Younger, the Union militia officer. It was kindred blood that strove. In such a warfare, the common ties of humanity are severed, and fury and hate come in where love and friendship have expired. Such was the situation in Missouri. The dissolution of the Confederate government did not restore peace in such communities. The quarrel was no longer political and for principle, but personal and for vengeance. For others there might be peace, but for contestants in such a strife there was no peace. If Jesse James took vengeance on Bond, it must be remembered that in the dreadful days of the bitter border war, Bond had gone with his band of militia to the Samuels place, taken Dr. Samuels, Jesse's stepfather, out, and hanged him by the neck until they supposed he was dead, and left him there while they went to find Jesse, who was plowing in the field. He was but a lad then, 
But they took him, tied him like a felon, and castigated him like a slave with a plow line, until faint from loss of blood and crazed from the agony of the infliction, he fell in a swoon, a mere quivering mass of flesh and blood. Jesse James was like other youthful human beings. Could he then forget such treatment? Was it not natural that he should seek vengeance? And the hour came. The tormentor fell into his hands, the strong passion overcame the young man, and he slew his enemy, and so too with Baines and others who fell victims to his relentless purpose. They met a fate at the hands of the boys, which, perhaps, better men than the Jameses would have connived at under similar circumstances. Thus, during the long, dark struggle, old scores were paid, but at the same time new causes of offense were given. The regularly organized armies of the late contending sections had been disbanded, and peace ostensibly reigned in the land. But old wounds had not healed along the border. There were malignant stars in the zenith of the guerrillas. Hope animated them for a space. They sought their childhood's homes. Doubtless they loved the scenes familiar to them in the old days, before they had learned to be slayers of men as well as others of the race do that anchor spot of memory. But the bright gleam of hope faded. The clouds of anguish overspread their sky. The lurid lightning of the old bitterness flashed athwart their heavens, and the ex-guerrillas were pursued and hunted like felons, beyond the pale of hope or pardon. The resources of the James family had been impaired, absorbed, wasted in the crucial time of strife but they were not permitted to make a peaceful effort to build up and restore wasted fortunes. Harassed on every hand, these boys, who were naturally of a strong temperament and perhaps of revengeful natures, were yet mere boys who had learned to be self-reliant, impatient of restraint, bold in action, and acquainted with the art of slaughter, turned upon their hunters and revealed the desperate character of the game they pursued. They were not left in peace after the light of peace blessed the land and made glad others' hearts. And they would have been more than human not to have undertaken their own protection under such circumstances. If others attempted to murder them, they did not hesitate to slay. So their lives have become lurid with slaughter. It must be remembered that we are not attempting to justify such a line of conduct. But there are many things in connection with human affairs that cannot be defended. We look at things as they are, and not as they ought to be. Doubtless it will be admitted on all hands that the James boys ought not to have led such a wild career of outlawry, that they ought not to have entered upon such a course of action, and finally it will be urged that it would have been far better for them, and everything and everybody connected with them, to have quietly yielded to the inevitable and voluntarily exiled themselves forever from the scenes of childhood and all the dear associations of their tender and more hopeful youth. Certainly it would have been best for them, but such a course would have been contrary to the world's experience of human nature. So when vigilance committees were hanging their comrades who had been with them by the campfires in the deep forests and in many a bloody foray, and when armed men fours and sixes, hunted for them, when repose was banished from their home, and the phantom shadow of death peered out at them from every forest thicket, 
and from the somber shades of the silent night. These boys rose up in rebellion against that society which refused to own them, and that order which organized the cohorts of vengeance. Jesse W. and Frank James, the terrible guerrillas of the wartime, were henceforth to become enemies of every man, or at least outlaws from society, and free companions of the highways. It might have been different with them, but the long lingering fires of hate burned after the lurid days of slaughter, and they were not the persons to refuse the gauntlet when thrown at their feet. Never too good by nature, circumstances have made them desperate, and hence, after concluding their bloody guerrilla record, we proceed with their history as outlaws and highwaymen of the most remarkable character of any known in the annals of history. Chapter 15. The Gallatin Bank Tragedy. Strange Men in Gallatin. They Call Upon the Cashier. Captain John W. Sheets Shot by Jesse James. Pursuit of the Manslayers. The Escape of the Robbers. The sudden appearance among the people of a peaceful community of a band of armed men who whoop like savages, fire off pistols, swear fearful oaths, and issue sharp commands, is calculated to produce a feeling of terror, and for a time at least to paralyze the energies of men. By pursuing this kind of tactics, the band of robbers which commenced at Russellville, Kentucky, in 1868, and concluded their last exploit at Glendale in the fall of 1879, have uniformly, with one single exception, been able to accomplish their work and make good their escape. The 16th day of December, 1869, will not be soon forgotten by the citizens of the flourishing little city of Gallatin, Davies County, Missouri, because of an incident which created a thrill of excitement that extended all over the land. Daylight bank robberies were not events of frequent occurrence until these later times. The affair at Russellville had taken place many months before, and it was thought altogether unlikely that such another audacious robbery would be soon attempted. After the Russellville affair, it was known Jesse and Frank James had made a journey to California, and it was not until late in the fall that they returned. It was supposed that only the Youngers and Jameses were capable of doing such deeds, and it was not known that the boys were at home by any considerable number of people. Such conclusions as these proved to be fallacious. On the day named, a gray, cold December day, the people of Gallatin were suddenly startled by the presence in the streets of the place of a band of armed men who rode furiously, shouted loudly, and swore fiercely at the people, commanding them in sharp, decisive tones, to get inside their houses and stay within their own domiciles. While a part of the band remained out in the streets, two of the robbers rushed into the bank. The cashier, Captain John W. Sheets, was behind the counter. He was instantly covered by a pistol and imperiously commanded to be still. The other robber proceeded to secure the contents of the safe, placed the bank's assets in a sack, and walking to the cashier, he placed the muzzle of a pistol almost against his temple and fired, the bullet crashing through the brain, and the unfortunate gentleman fell dead at the foot of his slayer. The robbers regained their horses, mounted, and the whole gang rode rapidly away. The citizens of Gallatin had seen them come and go. They did not remain long. The whole affair was the work of a few moments, 
They soon realized what had been done, and then there was mounting in hot haste, and almost as quickly as the robbers had come and gone, a well-armed posse was riding after them in hot pursuit. Captain John W. Sheets, the murdered cashier of the Gallatin Bank, served as a captain in the Missouri militia, and had often met parties of guerrillas in combat during the war. He was much esteemed, and his wanton assassination created a profound sensation, and a strong desire to capture his slayers was manifested throughout the community. The whole country was aroused. Davies County had sent many men to the ranks of the militia, and somehow the impression rapidly went abroad that the robbery had been committed by the James boys and their associates among the guerrillas. It stimulated them to greater exertions in the pursuit. The robbers obtained the start, and the men who had ridden with Quantrell never made a reconnaissance on indifferent steeds. Besides, no dashing cavaliers knew better how to ride than they. It was an exciting chase. The people of Gallatin had been taken by surprise. The startling suddenness of the appearance of the robbers, their matter-of-fact attention to the business in hand, and the terrible tragedy which concluded the drama, were well calculated to create surprise, not to say astonishment. The robbers were trailed directly toward Clay County. The Gallatin posse, after a hot chase, came up with the fleeing bandits. The latter turned upon their pursuers in so determined a way that they were compelled to call a halt and retreat to meet reinforcements. This gave the robbers time. They continued to retire toward the Clay County line. It was not difficult to trace them into that county. But after they had once penetrated well into the territory of Clay, all traces faded out. No one had seen such a band of men or any other gang like them, and all efforts to discover their retreat proved abortive. They disappeared, like the picture thrown out by the magic lantern when the slide is withdrawn suddenly and broken, at once and forever. Hearing that they were accused of the robbery, the James boys, who were then at home, mounted their horses and rode to Kearney to file their protest against the accusation. Their manner convinced the citizens that it might be dangerous to insist upon the allegation that they were the Gallatin robbers. It was given out in extenuation of the shooting of Captain Sheets that the person who did it believed him to be Lieutenant Cox, who it is said claimed to have killed Bill Anderson when that noted guerrilla was attempting to force the passage of the Missouri River in the face of a superior force of federal troops. The murder of the cashier has yet to be avenged. Not a dollar of the money has been recovered up to this time. End of section 5